Well, good morning and welcome to a brand new series here at Encounter called In God We Trust. And this is a series that we are going to be addressing politics head on. So like buckle up. Uh, I, I want to say that um, in an acknowledgement that oftentimes conversations like this, especially in the church, unfortunately, um, the conversations around politics can be marked by, by darkness or division. And I, and I really don't think um, that it has to be that way. And I hope that this isn't that. I think that this is going to be a conversation. Uh, that's full of light and full of unity and rallying calls that we can get behind. And so if there's somebody that you know that could really benefit from a conversation like that, go ahead and hit like or leave a comment. Share this with somebody else to get this broadcast out into their feed because the world needs a message of, of hope, uh, especially now. Throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is, uh, is taking a look at... Um, and what God has to say about how Christians ought to engage in the political realm. And, and I, I just want to acknowledge, too, that this series isn't just for Jesus followers as well. It's that our mission is to bring people far from God to new life in Christ. And after our 915 worship experience, I had a gentleman come up to me afterwards and just shake my hand um, from a distance and say, listen, I just want to let you know that, uh, that, this is, uh, that this is a topic that has kept me at several times in my journey away from the church. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so thank you. And so I just want to say that he's not alone. There's many others as well. And this is our way of saying, hey, listen, this is how Christians, if you're curious about what it means to follow Jesus, this is how God is asking us to engage from a, engage from a biblically informed perspective. And so what I'm going to do, especially for those of us in, our, in the room and also engaging online, is I want to address the elephant in the room. Or maybe the donkey, depending on like which side of the perspective uh, that you're on. That was, that was a joke. Come on, let's lighten up a little bit here. We can have some fun with this, right? And I want to address the elephants in the room and the donkeys in the room and just name the candidates that are going to be uh, put before us come November. Is that the, I know watching this online and represented in the room, there's many people who believe that Donald Trump deserves another, uh, another term to finish out what he began. And I also know that there's people watching online and in the room um, who, uh, who believe that Joe Biden would be the best uh, president of the United States for the next four years. And as I say those names, I'm, first of all, I'm just very glad that there's not either cheering or booing because as Christians or at least spiritual curious people looking to engage, it's not something that we, that we want to be doing. And also um, at the same time, as I say those names, there's like this, this oftentimes visceral reaction inside of us. Right? There's this, like, these feelings that we just get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable just saying the names in church, right? And we want to acknowledge that. For many of us, we believe that this is, this is the most politically divided time in the history of the United States of America. And I want to like push back on that just a little bit and say until our vice president get, like, gets in a duel with a former cabinet member in the administration, that was a Hamilton reference, it's probably not the most divisive time in history. But I mean, it's, it's, a, divided, it's a divided time. We know that that's true. And so like, listen, how do we again as Christians, how are we supposed to engage with this stuff? I want to lead off with a with a very controversial statement, and so I want you to stick with me. But before I say what the, what the controversial statement is, I want to set it up. I want to give you some background, perspective. Uh, before we get into that statement, I want you to know that this comes from a person, this comes from my heart, that I deeply love this country. I have so much affection for this country, and I so much appreciate the, the freedoms and the rights 
that this country has given me. I so I have such gratitude, profound gratitude for those who have fought for those freedoms and those rights, and especially those who have given their lives so that I could stand here and, do, and broadcast this message out with all of you here, broadcast this message out to the entire world. That is an incredibly, incredibly profound privilege, and I'm, just, I'm so grateful for that. I love this country. Sometimes, though, we don't have as much appreciation for it until like we're without it or away from it, or we see it through somebody else's eyes. And I had this experience a little while ago where I got to see it from another person's perspective and it just like hit me just that much more. I was sitting down in my neighborhood uh, with a uh, neighbor of mine and it's extremely, extraordinarily diverse neighborhood, which I love. And uh, I'm sitting, I'm talking to him, find out he immigrated to this country a few years ago uh, from overseas. You know, and I'm just, hey, besides what, why West Michigan, probably wasn't the weather, but like why, you know, the United States, so, like we'll start there. And he looks at me square in the eye. And he says, because this is the greatest country in the world. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's, there's some things that like, we have to work on. There's a couple of like, points of uh, potential improvement within there. And then he starts recalling like, where it's like where he came from. And he's talking about violence and corruption and just this crippling lack of opportunity. And just like hearing his story and seeing this great country through his eyes gave me such a profound renewed sense of gratitude. And so it's with that grateful heart that I come in and say, I love my country. And I hope that wherever you're watching Encounter Church Online, that you love your country too. I love my country, the United States of America, but it is not my home. I love this country, but it isn't my final and ultimate home. Now, what we're doing throughout this series in God We Trust is sort of using the Pledge of Allegiance. Some of you might remember it growing up. Uh, some of you grew up maybe out of the country and you've never heard it before. It's usually kids, school, stand up. We look at the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. And this is the next three installments of this series. One nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And today we're looking at that one nation. Which nation do we belong? I love this country, but like I said, I don't believe that it's ultimately our home. One of the reasons for that is that it's too small. Is that if it's just limited to this country, I think that, that God is shorted because he has, he has a global vision. He has a, he has a vision no smaller than the entire world. Why? Well, it's just said it in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's the vision that God has. It's that big. It's a, it's a God-sized vision for God. So love that whole world. And we don't want to limit it down to just one small country. In it, it's, it's too little. It's not God-sized enough. And I also want to say something, something funny tends to happen when we have these like political conversations. You know, it's how crucial as it is, but, but we, start to, we start to confuse and we start to conflate our love of country with our love of God. And it starts to easy to, to, to start to push these things one on top of another and to almost think of them as if they're the same thing. And so this installment of the part one of the series in God We Trust is about teasing these things out and saying, no, 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 no. We love our country, but we worship a king. We love this country, but the one that we worship does not sit at a desk behind 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We love our country, but we worship a king. 
And so C.S. Lewis has this quote about teasing these things apart, where he said that almost all crimes of history have come about when religion is confused with politics. Politics, which always runs by the rules of ungrace, allures us to trade away grace for power, a temptation the church has often been unable to resist. Just one more time, the point in a nutshell, we are loyal to a country, but we worship a king. How do we do that? That is a good question. How do we engage, especially if you're curious about coming on this Jesus path, how are you supposed to engage from a biblically informed perspective? Let's go there. Uh, I want to go to just one verse this morning. There's so much in this verse that we're not going to be moving around too much. It's just one in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll back it up, and we'll make a couple comments about it. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay, what did we just read? I mean, I had underlined there a holy nation. Who is the holy nation? Now, obviously, he's probably not talking about the United States of America, specifically right here, because this is several thousand years, a couple thousand years before it was written, before it be, like, became a nation, right? Well, who is he talking about, holy nation? Is he talking about his nation? Is he talking about Rome? That's doubtful. It's doubtful because at the end of that letter, Peter wraps it up by referring to Rome as Babylon, uh, which is kind of like this tradition of, of, of negativity and saying, like, I'm writing this from Rome, from like the belly of darkness itself. So he's not talking about Rome as the holy nation, the, the nation that he's geographically situated in and writing that. We also know that because in 1 Peter 1, 1, it starts up in the first opening lines. It's saying, this letter was written to exiles. This letter is written to those exiles scattered around, many translations have. Other ones say that this letter is written to the aliens. This letter is written to those living temporarily. And we believe that by God's Holy Spirit, that this letter was inspired for the people then and also for us today. So he's looking at us today and he's going, listen, wherever you are, this is not your permanent home. This is a temporary home. An alien staying here. An exile scattered into this place, as Peter writes this. As Peter writes this, he's, he's kind of like coming to mind some of the imagery, imagery, maybe, of a contemporary of his called Paul. When Paul wrote, he introduced this concept of being an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador in chains as he wrote from prison. And I love that language, ambassador. It's, it's so perfect uh, because of what it meant then from a historical perspective, what it, means to, what it still means today. An ambassador is somebody who, who, has the high, who is the highest ranking diplomat sent to us as a representative from one country to another. One of the, one of the most well-known ambassadors in the history of the U.S. probably uh, would be Ben Franklin, uh, name and face on the $100 bill. Not, by the way, a former president, but he was a former ambassador. He was an ambassador of the emerging United States in the 1700s to France. And he was such an effective ambassador that he actually was able to garner financial and military support from the French to, to assist and to aid in the revolution of the United States independence from England. I mean, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for Ben Franklin's savvy intact in, in a ambassadoring in France, 
We might be drinking tea instead of coffee and driving on the wrong side of the road. Probably not. But like you, you get, you get, it's incredibly important. And now Paul and Peter here are, are turning our attention towards you and me and saying you are ambassadors from this holy nation of heaven. God has sent you as ambassadors to represent heaven's interests on earth. I, I hope that as I say that, you like me, we have this like this, this weightiness about that. Like God sent me, God sent you and you and you and you, God sent each one of us as an ambassador to represent heaven's interests on earth. That's a lot. And God says, no, but, but you don't, you don't go alone. Let me read you the opening line again. But, verse 9, but you are a chosen people. Is that God picked you. You're not just randomly self-selecting. God, God picked you out. He chose you. That you were not elected by people. You were chosen by God. <laughs> what does it mean to be, to be chosen by God? And the, and the difference is that when I was in third grade, uh, I remember distinctively going out to recess where we'd play lunch period. We'd play um, lunch uh, recess. We'd play kickball all recess long. I remember this one guy, a friend of mine, Brian, who got selected to be one of the team captains. I don't really know. I don't remember how you, like, became a team captain, but, like, for, and he wasn't typically one of them uh, to, to be a captain, but he was. And so what that meant, two captains, right? And they would, and they would pick. The kids would line up on the, on the fence, and, uh, and the captains would take turns picking who they wanted on their team. And you got a sense of, like, your athletic abilities real quick in one recess, depending on where you were picked in that order. It was cruel for many of us, me. But, but Brian, for some reason, like, he gets to be one of the captains, and he starts picking people, and like, that's kind of a weird pick. And then, and then we start to find out Brian is just picking his friends for his team. He has, no, he has no concept or he's paying no attention to like athletic ability whatsoever. He's just picking one friend to be on his team because he wanted to play kickball with his friends. And we're over here like, hey man, just like, no, 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 don't pick him, pick him. Like everybody knows he like kicks a homer every single time. You gotta pick him. And he just went, doesn't, didn't matter. He wasn't friends with him. And he just, he picked him on his team. And that's like this example of this dictatorship when it comes to the playground because it doesn't matter what his people wanted because the people were not elected. The team members were not elected by the people. They were chosen by the captain. And when God is lining people up on the fence and he's like asking you and you and you and you to be on his team, he's not paying attention to your kickball athleticism. He's not paying attention to your intellectual capacity. He's not paying attention to your voting record. He's looking at you and he's saying, I pick you. Not because of who you are, it's because of who I am. And no, it's a good thing that you are not elected by people. You are chosen by God. Because I've got something in store for you that the people are not always going to appreciate. I was reminded of that earlier this week. When a, a mentee and friend of mine uh, named Daniel, he used to fill in for us and, uh, and speak from time time again we commissioned him out and he's with a with another church now but he's being installed as a, as a pastor there and he's going through this examination process with a bunch of region original churches gathering on it's just like grilling him with these questions and i remember because 
Uh, well, I was in that seat about 10 years ago. And so he calls me up, kind of nervous, a couple hours before the exam uh, started. And he's just got a few, like, last-minute questions. You know, what if they ask me about this or what if they ask me about that? And the reason why he was so nervous is that he knew how it went for me. <laughs> is that about 10 years ago, I went through this same process. And, and an argument, not like a fight because, like, it's pastors and church leaders, but like an argument, a verbal sparring breaks out on the floor about whether or not I can move on to the next section of test, the next section of exam, because the, the thought process among a couple of them was like, I, I don't know, like, sure, maybe, maybe he can go to a church like Encounter, but like, I don't know, what if he gets, what if he gets called and, and hired into to my church? It's a traditional church. I don't think he's going to be able to operate in that environment, and so... What Daniel knew in going into his exam is that my exam actually got so heated that they actually asked all the guests to leave. And for over an hour, they had what's called executive session where they just debated amongst themselves whether or not I would be allowed to become a pastor. Now, eventually, months later, months later, they said, okay. And some of you are like, yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. It probably takes, okay. But like months later, eventually they said, sure, you can become a pastor. Like you're in, you know, you, you checked the box. You convinced us. But for a while there, like I came back to passages like this and said, again, thank God that was not elected by people, especially those people. Thank God I'm not elected by people, but chosen, this vision chosen, laid on my heart by God. And I want to look at you, some of you have visions that God put on your heart. Some of you have a vision for a ministry, a vision for a classroom, a vision for a neighborhood, a community, a vision for a person, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member, somebody that you desperately want to see come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And God is putting this vision of a changed neighborhood or changed life on your heart. And there's going to be people who will doubt that message. But I'm telling you, don't doubt the vision that God gave you. Don't doubt it because they haven't seen what God has put inside of you. You are not elected by other people. You are lined up and chosen by God. And not only that, he has a tall order in mind for you. In verse 9, we continue on. Your chosen people, a royal priesthood. That, that phrase, uh, the royal priesthood, there's a phrase out of that, a priesthood of all believers, that was really popularized in the 1500s by a guy named Martin Luther, who on October 31, 1517, wrote out 95 theses or 95 grievances that he had with the church, and he wrote them, and he nailed them up on the church front door, which is kind of like a bulletin board in that day, but he like, put them on the front door of the church for discussion and for debate. And one of the, the central arguments that he had that many of the, those theses were about was that simple concept, that straightforward concept, that he believed that the word priest should be as common as the word Christian. Because he believed that priests weren't just people who spoke on a stage with a microphone in front of other people in a church sometimes. He believed priests were anybody that trusted their life in the hands of Jesus every Christian. And honestly, like 503 years later, almost, like we're still working on it. We still haven't quite figured that thing out. I know that because I hang out with people. I go over to other people's house or people invite me out to lunch or whatever. And then like the food comes or the food is served. And we're all sitting there and it's like, not my house, their house. And they say, um, 
Do you, you want to pray then? I mean, I like praying. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I pray even when I'm not in front of people, right? Like, I like to pray. But, but the idea that somehow I should pray because, like, what? Because of my email signature or what I do during the week? Like, like God hears my prayers a little bit more? No, no. Martin Luther, like, cleared that thing up for us 500 years ago. You don't have to have fancy robes and a big hat in order for God to hear you. Because if you trust Jesus, whether it's with, for 30 years of your life or 30 seconds, the last 30 seconds of your life, when you begin that decision of trusting him and believing that he died and came back to life, listen, you are no longer a regular person. At that moment, you become a royal priesthood. It's new. It's different. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago makes you into something entirely new. Not a person, a, ro- a regular person, a royal priesthood. And he continues on in, in, in the second part of the verse, also God's special possession. Verse 9. That critical word, important word, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're chosen as a priest for a purpose. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As it relates to politics this morning, this is where it gets a little dicey. Stick with me here. Peter was not a Roman citizen. He didn't have that privilege. Not everybody born within the territory of Rome automatically became a Roman citizen. It was, it was won, or in some cases it was purchased before it was passed down from generation to generation. Another Christian by the name of Paul did have Roman citizenship. And so we learn from Paul how he related, how he used his citizenship and what he did with it. And what we know is that he used those freedoms and those rights not as an end to themselves, not as the final destination. You see, those freedoms and those rights that he had as a Roman citizen, he leveraged for influence to what? To declare the glory of God, to declare the praises of the one who called him out of darkness into his wonderful light. There was purpose to those privileges, to those rights and the freedoms that he had. A couple of examples. Some of the the privilege that he had was getting to walk and getting to travel through freely across the Roman Empire. You see, the Romans, they built these roads and, and they built these roads and, and nicely completed them so that the, the soldiers, so that the armies could quickly move from one city to another to maintain control and, and subjugation of the people at all times. Oppression is what, the, is what they were for. But Paul, he uses those roads not to oppress and to subjugate. He uses those exact same roads traveling through them freely because he's a citizen. He's allowed to do that. It's his right to what? To spread hope. To spread the gospel to declare the praises of the one who called him out of darkness into Christ's wonderful light. He uses the freedoms and the rights that he had, even in one case, appealing his case directly to Caesar, the highest office in the land at the time. He didn't have to, but he chose to, again, for influence, because it was used as a tool, it was used as a purpose to something greater 
He used his citizenship to avoid certain kinds of punishment and at times different detainment. He uses his citizenship, his freedoms, and his rights, not as an end to themselves, but for a purpose. And that's what we learn to use ours with too. As many of you, if you're citizens of your country, especially if you're citizens of this country, the United States of America, you have phenomenal, phenomenal rights, freedoms, privileges that so many generations of people around the world couldn't ever even dream of before. Don't make the mistake of thinking that those tremendous freedoms and rights are the end to themselves, that they're identifying markers they're not, that those are our tools to use, to declare the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That we get to use those freedoms, freedoms of speech, freedoms of writing, freedoms of inviting, so that we can declare God's praises again and again and again. And that's where many of us, and this is going to get real challenging here at the end, that's why many of us start to fall down. Because we start to see our identity in those things in and of themselves. So uh, talking to somebody earlier about what kind of community do you belong to? And in different areas, we relate to different kinds of communities. Uh, you might show up to a, a school parent association, and, and that's a school meeting. Or you might show up to a, a nonprofit where you serve on, or maybe as a board member, and that community is, is marked by, by that organization doing that work. And so this morning, we're talking about community as it relates to the church. And church, in the church, within Christians, not just within these walls, but wherever Christians are gathered, we are a resurrection community, which means that the defining point, as it relates politically, the defining point of what makes us a community is commonly holding the beliefs that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died and God raised him up from the dead three days later. That is our defining belief. Not what holds us together politically and the beliefs that we have. Messy things start to happen. I was so struck by this quote I came across. It was shared to me earlier by Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. And he writes that we should feel more at home with people who share our faith but not our politics than we do with people who share our politics but not our faith. And I was so struck with that because I start to like relate that into my own heart and into my own life. And where do I feel most at home, most comfortable? Where do you feel most at home? Is it within a collection of people, a community, where the single-held belief of the resurrection is your defining belief together as a group? Or do you feel most at home if that's not part of the case? You feel most at home when everybody votes a certain way or everybody believes in government to be run a certain way. Wherever you feel most at home, would it be fair to say that that is the nation that you belong? And I hope for all of us, my prayer is that for all of us as we enter into this season, that we can say the defining characteristic for me and where I am finding myself most at home is in a resurrection community. Even if we disagree politically, what defines us as one nation sent as ambassadors from heaven 
is our common held hope in the resurrection that sin and guilt and shame is defeated on the cross and God raised him up, Jesus up, to give us freedom, not just of speech, freedom from sin and from bondage. Church, I want to be very direct with us. This November, if Joe Biden wins the election, many areas of our country will be darker. And there will also be glimmers of hope and light. This November, if Donald Trump wins the election, there's many areas of our country that will grow darker pockets of hope and light. You are an ambassador sent by God to represent heaven's interests on earth. You are part of that pocket of light no matter what happens this November. Represent heaven's interests here on earth. God chose you for this. He didn't wait for you to be elected by people. You're not just an average person. You are a royal priesthood with the same spirit living inside of you that raised Jesus from the dead. Use the tools and the rights and freedoms that you have at your disposal as an American citizen or wherever else you're from to declare the praises of the one who brought you out of darkness, brought me out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's all, let's stand up together and wherever you are in your living rooms at home as well and let's pray to God, our Father in heaven. Lord, we need so much help here. God, we can look around and we can start to see that, that things are fragmented, that things aren't as they should be. Uh, God, I, I pray that as we as a church move out of this space, whether it's this building, whether it's the lawn, whether it's wherever people are watching and worshiping from in the world. God, as we move out of this time, that we move out as ambassadors of you, representing your interests here on earth, God, speaking full of grace and full of truth again and again, God, an unrelenting force of your good, declaring your praises again and again and again. God, online, in person. God, with our neighbors, in our offices, with our families, with our extended families, that we might declare you and your praises for what you have done. Jesus, we ask this simple prayer. May heaven break out.